there are four times as many people in urban areas who are not connected to broadband because they can't afford it as there are people who aren't connected to broadband in rural areas because they can't have it, they can't find it. We're bringing you another episode in our special Community Broadband Bits podcast series, Why NC Broadband Matters. I'm Jess Delfiaco with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. NC Broadband Matters is a North Carolina nonprofit. Their mission is to attract, support, and champion the universal availability of affordable, reliable, high-capacity internet access, which is necessary for thriving local communities, including local businesses and a local workforce, so each can compete in the global economy. The group has created the North Carolina chapter of CLIC, the Coalition for Local Internet Choice. We are working with NC Broadband Matters to produce this series, focusing on issues affecting people in North Carolina that also impact people in other regions. We have three guests on the show today. First, Christopher speaks with Leslie Boney, Director of the Institute for Emerging Issues, about the importance of digital inclusion in both rural and urban areas. Then they're joined by Darren Smith of Wilson, North Carolina's Gig East Exchange, and Ron Townley of the Upper Coastal Plain Council of Governments. Ron and Darren discuss how broadband infrastructure is helping revitalize the economy in Wilson and beyond. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, normally in Minneapolis, but taking a a short break to visit NC State, North Carolina, a school that has been hosting a lot of really good events around broadband lately. Today I'm here at the Institute for Emerging Issues, uh, speaking first with the director, Leslie Boney. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. We have two additional guests that we're going to work in and and really focus on toward the the end of the show. I'm going to introduce them as they come on so you don't forget who they are. But I want to start off by asking you, we're here today at this Reconnect event, and we'll have the the video um, attached to wherever we post this podcast. But, But this is one of a series of really interesting events. And so maybe first tell me about the Institute for Emerging Issues, and then I'd love to know more about the Reconnect series. The Institute for Emerging Issues has been around for 30 plus years, and our goal every year is to come up with an issue that is either lurking around the corner or is stuck. Uh, Something that, you know, is about to hit North Carolina that we should do something about from a public policy standpoint, or we've been trying to work on and we're not really making any progress. And so that's the uh, goal every year, and that's where we came up with this idea of a reconnect theme. And so this reconnect theme is not just about broadband. I think it's hard probably to talk about some of these subjects without bringing broadband into it, but there's different themes that you've had different events in different locations. What we did a couple of years ago was to crowdsource our next topic. And it turns out if you ask people what the biggest issue facing any state is, there are a bunch of different answers. In our case, there are 158 different biggest issues facing our state. And so we narrowed things down. And as we got closer to uh, an answer, sort of a final four of ideas, we realized that almost- (laughs) Sorry, it's a very NC State analogy. (laughs) Well, at the time, we weren't participating in any bracket. And so when we got got down to 32 ideas, we put things in a bracket because it was the only bracket NC State was going to be participating in that year. (laughs) And that's that's how we started narrowing it down. And each week we'd say, okay, we're getting closer to the answer. We got down to the final, actually five, and we realized they were all similar issues. They were all- in some cases, people saying, we are not connected the way we would like to be, and we'd like to do something about it. So one theme had to do with civic connection, one with rural-urban connection, another one about people feeling like they're disconnected from real opportunity in their jobs, 
something on health, feeling like health was holding them back from being as productive as possible, and this topic on technological opportunity. But as you alluded to, almost all those topics, broadband has come up in some way or another because it's, it's a key part of the solution on each of those topics. As you framed the issue today, one of the things I found interesting was that you didn't want us to get caught in this discussion solely about infrastructure and the idea of like who has a high quality connection on the side of their home today. It's much more about how are we using that. This is a really important issue, and you and your podcast have done an amazing job of demystifying a lot of the infrastructure elements. So I'm not in any way downplaying those. Those are critical. We've got to figure out a way to solve infrastructure problems, particularly in rural areas. What we were trying to say is if at the end of the day we have solved all the infrastructure problems and we still have, as we do, about a 60% adoption rate, that means 40% of people are not going to be able to participate in the economy that we have built for them. So we need to start thinking now about how you build an economy where everybody is legitimately able to fully participate in the economy, the high-tech economy of the future. And if we do that, it happens to have huge benefits, huge side benefits for businesses that are right now are having huge skill shortages. It's gonna make huge differences for our farms. We like to have small farms in North Carolina. If we wanna hold on to those small farms, they've gotta be as productive as possible. And there are things that technology can do for them. We're gonna need workers that can retrain themselves and move up over time. Uh, and if they're gonna do that, they're gonna need some of those courses available to take online. It's really hard to follow online courses via your phone. That's a, that's a comment that I was, I was curious if we'd have a chance to explore a little bit because I thought you made that point that the, the cell phones are important and we're not gonna diminish them, but at the same time, in no way is that sufficient for people. It's really hard to fill out a job application online. It's really hard to take an entire course online. It's really hard to do your homework or write a paper online simply using your phone. That's when you need a device. You need something beyond the cell phone. One of the benefits of, of me actually coming in for this event was that I've been able to interview a number of other people. And I don't know if this interview will run before or after that one, but um, Latricia, Dr. Latricia Townsend, uh, who is uh, from here at NC State as well, uh, made the point that, that the, for students in particular, it's not just about filling their brains with facts or thinking how to think. They're preparing them for the workforce. And if you're not familiar with using a computer on the Internet, you may not be ready to join the workforce after after you finish up your education. There was a big study that came out earlier this year. It was a national study that Amazon and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce did that looked at rural small business productivity and estimated, I'm just going to do the North Carolina breakout. I think the national number was $44 billion in underutilized potential. In North Carolina, it was $1.9 billion more that if companies were fully utilizing technology, they would have been able to take advantage of and, and add to their gross state product. But when you looked at the survey of business owners, 41% of them said one of the things that was holding them back was skilled workers who knew how to work with the devices that they were hoping they would work with in the workplace. They just didn't have those skills. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious, one of the, I wouldn't even say necessarily arguments, I think some people have, have you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think some people have maybe been polarized beyond what's necessary, but in the discussion between uh, urban and rural. But one of the talking points has been that 
urban areas are where we see a lot of the progress. It's where a lot of people want to live. It's where we're seeing um, a lot of our universities are clustered. And, and frankly, it's, it's most of the economic activity now in the country. And so I want to provocatively just say, why shouldn't we just focus most of our attention on urban areas and, and, and whatever happens in rural areas happens in rural areas? We did a study earlier this year that looked at commuting patterns. And if you look at commuting patterns, most of the counties in North Carolina, roughly 50% of the people wake up every day and drive to another county to work. Roughly 50% of people that are working in a county have driven in from another county to work. So employers and employees no longer particularly care about county lines. Some people are choosing to live in rural areas because they're more affordable. We have a huge affordable housing problem in this state and in the nation. Uh, so in some cases you may choose to live there because the cost of living is lower. In some cases you may choose to live there because you really like a, a rural setting. Uh, but you may want that job in an urban area. If we can get connectivity down, you can cut down on some of the commuting that's going on. And if you have a, a truly connected house, you can work from home. But the same is true in urban areas. Uh, urban areas really need rural areas for food, for water, for air, for uh, workers. And I think one of the things that we've been trying to make in this Connect series is the synergies that you need to have in place. If an employer is coming in and you're trying to sell them uh, on your workforce, you're not just selling your workforce, you're selling the county next door and the one beyond that. So one of the counties we've been working with, one of the groups we've been working with is called STEM SENC. And the point is, if you're going to recruit STEM companies to southeastern North Carolina, that's what SENC stands for, you're going to need to draw on the entire region to do that. And that's whether the companies happen to locate in an urban area or a rural area, you're going to need each other. I, I really like that answer. I'm, I have to say that I'm sitting here nervous because some people have never heard any of my discussions before and might think that I don't care about rural areas. And, and so I just want to, I want to throw in there to make sure that I think it's a point that we need to discuss. But I also want to say that to be very clear, this country had a, had a choice in the, in the 30s whether or not we left rural areas behind with electricity. And not just to our credit of a sense of charity, but the fact that we connected everyone made us a much better country. And so I just want to I want to make sure that we we touch on that as well, because there's a lot of different answers we can give on that. But it's really important that we understand that we are all in this together unless something very horrible happens. Larry Irving, one of the speakers who came earlier in the day and spoke to the group, made the point that the danger if we don't take this seriously is another episode of redlining where essentially we say that well we care about some people we don't care about everybody and maybe in 10 15 years we'll get around to those other people and we'll solve the challenges that some disconnected rural areas have or we'll save some of the we'll solve some of the affordability issues that inner city areas have uh, but there's no real hurry for that and I would say that wasn't a great answer when we were doing rural electrification. It wasn't a good answer when we were trying to decide who gets loans for their houses. And it's not a good answer when it comes to talking about broadband connectivity either. I'm going to bring in our other guests now, and we're going to have a, a little bit of a bridge before we before we lose Leslie. Uh, but I want to introduce uh, Darren Smith, who is the manager of the Gig East Exchange uh, for the city of Wilson. Wilson, North Carolina, a city that... I may have done more interviews with people from than any other location on earth because it's a wonderful, wonderful place. Very true. 
I'd have to agree with that. I just wanted to echo what Leslie said. You know, I think about Wilson, and I think about in the 30s, they have always looked forward, and they built their own electrical grid because they realized we have to have this because everybody else is going to have it. We have to have this to move forward, and that has always been in the DNA of the city. So when you see fast forward and you see what's happening with they built their own broadband, then building a co-working space like Gig East Exchange was just a natural way to go, okay, we know this growth is coming from Raleigh. We've got to be prepared, and we've got to make sure we're offering the services. We have the type of community that people are going to want to come to. Um, so that really something I wanted to touch on. I thought you really did a good job of that. Excellent. And we also have Ron Townley, who is the Planning Development Director for the Upper Coastal Plain Council of Governments, which includes Wilson and points north and east of there. Yeah, thanks for having me here today, Chris. Yes, I wanted to echo what Leslie said. The urban-rural connection is important, but you really can't take the rural option for Americans off the table. So traditionally, we've always invested in that infrastructure where there was not a capital return on investment to the private sector, whether that was water and sewer, telephones, electrification, uh, and now we've come to the time of broadband, the new infrastructure. And for the private sector, a lot of times these return on investments do not make sense, and a public-private sector partnership has to be negotiated. So, you know, coming from a region, my board of directors at the council in our five counties of Northampton, Halifax, Edgecombe, Nash, and Wilson have decided, you know, that the vision is really about thinking regionally, acting locally on those regional visions in order to compete globally, right, to keep those rural uh, options open. Because, you know, my family chose to live in a rural environment for the quality of life that you can find in eastern North Carolina. Thank you. So I want to I want to come back and I'll ask Leslie a question that and then we're going to we're going to release you into the wild of of the uh, the breakout rooms where there's a lot of interesting thinking happening. But I want to ask you so we've we've had a wonderful series of panels today. Is there anything that 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 you would want to reflect on or anything that that touched you more than you expected throughout the day? Well, I think the most meaningful statistic I heard which you've made before on your program, but I think a lot of people don't hear, is that this is not just a rural challenge. When we talk about broadband connectivity and, more importantly, adoption, uh, if you look at the total number of people in the United States who are disconnected, uh, what Larry Irvin said is that there are four times as many people in urban areas who are not connected to broadband because they can't afford it as there are people who aren't connected to broadband in rural areas because they can't have it, they can't find it. And so I think that's a meaningful way of putting it into perspective and, and showing that this notion of digital inclusion matters not just for rural areas, but also for urban areas. It's a rural and urban challenge. And if we can find a way to crack the code, we've done something that is meaningful for both rural and urban America. Yes, I think that's been a real challenge, and I would say it's a largely a, a political challenge because it's easy to talk about rural areas and putting money into them to connect people because they're areas that um, no one's ox is being gored. And when you start talking about intervening in urban areas, then someone's, someone may at least fear their ox could be gored. Um, and so I, I think that's an important statistic, and I, and I hope people will continue to recognize not just the, the unfortunateness of, of the number of people that don't have connections, but the lost opportunities that we're seeing. And that's, I suppose that's your job here. 
Think what a powerful political coalition that would be, rural America and inner city urban America. We've never tried that before. Mm-hmm. That would be really interesting. But I think it is, it's a moral issue. You know, why did we do rural electrification? Not just because there was going to be an ROI, because there wasn't immediately, although I would argue over the long term there has been. We did it because it was the right thing to do. And in this case, we believe that significant efforts to make sure that full broadband is available to everyone in the United States, but also adopted and fully taken advantage of, is the right thing to do. And that's why we should do it. Well, that's a wonderful way to leave us. Uh, Leslie Boney, the director of the Institute on Emerging Issues here at NC State, which is a Go Wolfpack, um, wonderful institution that, like I said, has been doing a lot of really good work on broadband across different parts of the university. So thank you so much for your time today. So, Ron, I'm, I'm curious then, you're, you're representing um, a group of uh, local governments more broadly across the northeastern part of, of North Carolina. What are you reflecting on today? Um, and, and, and I realize listeners haven't actually seen the full day's events, the best of but did anything today strike you as surprising or, or in a way that you weren't expecting? I think some of the statistics are surprising. And of course, I'm here networking, meeting new people, looking for resources to come into the area. The um, North Carolina is divided into 16 councils of governments or commissions, and I have 47 member governments that sit at our table, our regional table. There are 41 of them are municipalities, five of them are counties. Over 30 of them are very small and rural in nature. And in order to succeed, we uh, have a comprehensive economic development strategy. We all do, all the 16 members across the uh, the state. We all share some common goals, which is to build on the region's competitive advantages and leverage the marketplace, to establish and maintain robust regional infrastructures, to create revitalized, healthy, and resilient communities, and to develop talented and innovative people. Now, what do you need to make those four goals happen, (laughs) right? You cannot do it without broadband connectivity. And while there are areas in the region, like the city of Wilson, Uh, like areas up in the Roanoke uh, electric cooperative portions of the area that are doing really well and making some magic happen. But there are also other areas that struggle to compete. They are starting to lose population. The participation rates and what internet is available, as was mentioned, is unaffordable in these rural areas. And so we are looking to bring regional scales and regional thinking and solutions to the table in order to try and address those issues. And so, Darren, I'm, I'm curious as well. I, you know, I feel like being with the city of Wilson, in some ways, I wonder if you've seen it all. Um, but uh, let, let me start with just asking you, uh, if you took anything from way today you want to share with listeners. Yeah, I really did. I, uh, and first of all, thanks for having me, Chris. I've got to hear you definitely talk to more of our folks in Wilson and what they're up to and what they're doing. So uh, this is a great opportunity. The thing that stuck out to me was there was a particular gentleman from Iowa, uh, Zachary Hammerman, I think it was his name. I thought he did an excellent job talking about how you build uh, community. That's such a huge part of what we're trying to do in Wilson and, and what other areas of the state are doing. But that really stuck out to me. And one thing in particular he said, he goes, you know, you might as well put a pin in Raleigh and circle a 200-mile radius. would would, would totally include Wilson because that's where the growth's coming. And I just thought that was really eye-opening that here's someone who's gone into a city that he moved to, that he selected, and really started a community uh, space and really started making it happen there. 
what made me think of Wilson and, and what we're doing there is the Gigas Exchange. Once Wilson started building out their broadband. I'm just going to cut you off for a second. And let me, sometimes I like to just do a quick summary and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. But for people who may not be familiar, Wilson uh, in the late 2000s built a citywide fiber optic network to connect every last premise. Uh, the state um, uh, in 2011 decided that that was not something it wanted to encourage and not only forbade other cities from doing it, but put a fence around you. And so you have an electric utility that built the fiber network. The electric utility serves nearby counties and areas, and and you're not able to expand that. And so that's some context I wanted people to have. Yeah, no, and great job. You know, and I look at that, and I, I and it makes a natural progression for the city of Wilson because they're like, okay, we have this broadband, we need to utilize it. And at the very same time, um, they had been part of Innovate NC, which was a program that really brought to the forefront um, the city to really think about how can we drive entrepreneurship? How can we drive innovation? And that immediately brings up that you, well, you have to have an ecosystem for that. You have to have a community to help sustain that and build it, which then immediately brings up, well, you got to have a space for this. So the exchange- A physical space. A physical space. And I'll touch on a couple of things. The reason we went with Gig East Exchange, and maybe for your listeners, Gig East uh, really came out of that whole innovation discussion. The city was looking for a way to label this whole initiative. And so they started thinking about the Whirly Gig Park. If your listeners are familiar with that. They should Google it if they're not. They're not. They definitely need to see pictures. They thought about we're in a gig economy, thought about gigabit speed. And so they came up with Gig East, East being that we're in the eastern part of the state. That really became the symbol for the initiative in Wilson. And it really was is made up of three parts. We have a, a, a yearly conference. Our next one's coming up, May 7th, 8th, and 9th. And that is a chance to bring in thought leadership. It's a chance to bring in the Leslie's of the world to really help educate not only the local folks in, in our community, but the region. At the same time, we do quarterly meetups to, again, drive people thinking about entrepreneurship and really demystify it as much as possible. And then we have the Giggies Exchange, the space. The space really is going to be, and we hope to open early May. It's a 100-year-old building. Uh, the city was awarded a grant from Golden Leaf. We matched it as a city. So it makes us a little different than the over 2,000 and some co-working spaces we see across the country and that we're not trying to make a profit. We're trying to make an impact. And that impact being, what if we had a space that entrepreneurs could come into, uh, remote workers could come into, students could come into, people who are trying to build up their skills in this digital age could come to and find programming um, and find people to exchange ideas with and exchange what they know, the people they know. That is what that exchange is about. And somebody just asked me today in the hallway, can you give it one word? And I was like, well, I can't give it one word, but I would describe it as it's definitely economic development is a big part of that because the city recognizes we have some strong industries with agriculture, with manufacturing, but we realize it has to be diverse. Mm -hmm. We have to have a lot of different small startup companies to help drive the economy. Well, let me just, so this is a point that I feel like is important to make. And this actually gets us all back to the Institute yeah. for Emerging Issues and how do we take advantage of this? 
For people who aren't familiar, Wilson has no business having the economic success it's had recently. You're you're in a, you're a city that was hard hit by the the tobacco downfall. I mean, major hub of the t- entire world tobacco industry, majorly hit by the the down the the transition of manufacturing in many areas to to other parts of um, other con- other parts of the world. In many ways, I would say. I work with with cities. I've probably talked to more than 100 cities that have municipal broadband networks. Almost all of them define success as just getting to where you already are with with the jobs that you've created and the way that you've revitalized the economy. People are moving there to set up their jobs. And I feel like you're saying that's not good enough. (laughs) We need to do more to figure out how to take advantage of this. That's my impression. No, and I think it's it's spot on. I took this role as the manager, and, and my main focus is putting people in that building and putting programming in that building. But I've spent the last 25 years working and technology in Raleigh, uh, and I'm getting ready to move to Wilson. That's how much I believe in what they're doing. But to your point, I think a big tip of the cap has to go to the city council, their leadership, the city manager, their leadership, because to your, it is courageous. They've they've made some courageous decisions about we do not want to get left behind. This is great. We have these solid industries. How do we build off of those? How do we go and, and pull off of their experience to diversify even more so that we do not get left behind? And this is most important is it should hopefully five to eight years from now, we want to be a place where the young people go, you know, there's opportunity here. I I don't necessarily want to move. My family's here. I I like the lifestyle here. There's opportunity for me and I don't have to move. And maybe we even pull back some of the young people that did have to leave. So, Ron, what I'm what I'm curious about is I feel like if I understand your situation correctly, you're sort of sitting here and on the edge of this of this region that you represent, you kind of have a gold mine. You're trying to figure out how to advantage everyone in the region with a gold mine. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, going back to what I talked about about leveraging the marketplace. I actually came to North Carolina over 20 years ago in the late 90s and moved to the Asheville greater region. Which is on the western side in of the, the mountains. In the western side in the mountains. I think everybody knows a little bit about Asheville. Yeah, you know, I'm used to playing for a national audience. Most of the people who are listening to this probably in North Carolina, and they're like, of course that's where it is. Right, right. So, you know, Asheville saw that renaissance, right? They actually uh, struggled for a number of years as well in the remote Appalachians of western North Carolina. And they moved forward and have achieved great success through the creative class economy and bringing uh, new people in and diversifying and building infrastructure, et cetera. So now the opportunity is in eastern North Carolina, and we've come out here to help. Wilson's a fantastic example of what's happening. Uh, And you see energy in Rocky Mount, and you see things starting to happen in Roanoke Rapids. But it's absolutely right, as tobacco country and as a place who lost a lot of industry, folks have struggled. So in leveraging that, we really need to look at the region as a whole, how to not leave the folks in Northampton and these small towns behind and bring them together. So we've established a regional broadband task force, and that's the small towns coming together. And now, sorry, I want to paint a quick picture. This is a this is a region in which um, you have a you have a few co-ops. There's a real mix of of who's providing services, right? Yes, yes, it is a. Uh, It is a very diverse population. It is about 50-50 minorities. There's a a deep and rich history there that goes back for centuries, of course. And uh, some of these towns in our region, these small towns, were the first colonial towns where you could navigate the waterways of the Pamlico and 
Noose Rivers and Tar Rivers to their to their farthest points where initial settlements were made. Mm-hmm. And now the population is um, is 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 low low enough density that we don't see very easy business models to connect everyone. Not in today's structure, not in that 21st century economy. So our population is aging. Farms have been consolidating. Uh, kids have been moving out to find other opportunities. But there are people who want to come back into these towns and find this rural lifestyle. And it's difficult to do if you don't have the connectivity. That's question number one. Right. I was talking to uh, one person who bought a very large home in the rural area, and they were very excited at finding, you know, 3,500 square feet of a home less than five years old for $150,000 or something like that. (laughs) They moved in and found out they didn't have internet. That was the reason for the price of the house. They didn't have good cell phone connectivity as well. And so that literally drives down the real estate market. So we're working, you know, with these small towns and others to try and build some regional economies of scale. We're educating local leaders about digital literacy. We're doing community surveys uh, to understand what really are the, the speed rates out here in the communities and what the cost barriers are. And the ultimate goal is to um, map the public assets, things like water towers and right-of-ways and um other physical things that people can bring to the public sector can bring to a uh, public-private partnership and attract new service providers because some of the major providers quite honestly you know they they look at these areas and they say that return on investment isn't there we want to legislatively hold it for the future Mm -hmm. for that private investment to make that money but if that's 10 years from now that's you know in my opinion, 20 years too late. So we need to form these public-private partnership. I think if we can build out some of this infrastructure, getting people connected to Middle Mile, expanding Middle Mile, getting Wi-Fis on the old main streets of these small towns and things like that, uh, you're going to see economic opportunities explode again. And I think if we can go ahead, the ultimate goal of, of the work we're doing regionally is to have some of these small towns join together to offer economies of scale to these service providers, to say instead of 300 homes and, and five farms, we can offer you 2,000 homes and 25 farms to connect to. Yes, that's aggregation is the, the name of the game there. And I, we, um, for people who haven't heard it, we did an episode with Greg Coltrane with River Street Networks, who very much wants to work together with, with those sorts of aggregated local units. But let me come back to you, Darren, to just push these together. So Gig East Exchange is emphatically not about Wilson. It's about the region. And what can you do to help the whole region? Yeah, so we really want it to be seen as an innovation hub for the region. Um, and we've already taken steps to go out to the, the universities. Carolina University is right 30 minutes away, uh, as well as Goldsboro. And, and for your listeners, this may not mean much. but So we've gone out way outside of Wilson to make sure they understood this is for you too. And that's a big part of it, that, hey, this is a resource for you as well. This is not just a Wilson-based resource. And that's what we've been trying to do to communicate to the region. So you're going to launch it in three months. Have you seen any results yet? Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we actually have, even though there's not even any drywall all up yet. But yeah, we have. We, we have partnered with an organization in Raleigh called RIOT. It stands for Raleigh Internet of Things. Ten years ago, they were an organization that was really coming together to support all these people building devices to take advantage of wireless, uh, whether it was a flood sensor or 
we see it now pretty commonly. Uh, your listeners, I'm sure, have seen refrigerators that now connect to the Internet and they can access their shopping list. The great organization in Raleigh, they started an accelerator program about two years ago, free, 12-week program, because they really saw a need that these startups, most times they have an idea or they see a need that they feel like they have a solution for, but they don't know how to sell. They don't know how to market. They definitely don't know how to go pitch to um, financial, you know, venture capitalists. So they started a program to accelerate their growth, accelerate their knowledge, became wildly successful. Ride is a big partner of ours. We approached them and said, we're going to have this space. Programming is, is, you know, key to the success. Uh, what if we had one of your cohorts in our space? And they're like, you yeah, know, that's a great idea. And I said, you know, and we said, yeah, because we could offer this to people in the eastern part of the state that normally probably don't have access to this kind of program. And so we set out to go again to the region and educate everyone, the different towns and cities. We really hoped, because it was such a new program, if we could get four or maybe five startups to apply, we would be knocking it out of the park. Well, we had way over 20. We literally had someone from Chicago a California, had a handful here from Research Triangle Park. Just to be clear, we're sitting here in February and it's like 65 <laughs> degrees outside. So right. Chicago isn't too surprising. Yeah. I, I'm sure they didn't have too, it wasn't too hard for them to get on a plane, but they got on a plane, flew to Raleigh, got on a train, came to Wilson. And so we had over 20 apply. We uh, should hopefully make an announcement soon of who those six or seven, I think we selected seven, but that's huge for something that we haven't even opened the doors yet. And that program will be going in there. So that's wonderful yeah so ron let me ask you if you have any concluding comments as uh this has already been i mean it's hard to do justice to a topic this rich but we're running out of time sure sure well first you know i just wanted to say how much we value the partnership of getty east and darren and the work that they're doing out there and his story is a perfect example of you know build it or even say you're going to build it and they will come and, you know, so that's important, I think, for these small towns as well. We're getting libraries connected, schools are connected, main streets are starting to do Wi-Fi in these small towns. There are small entrepreneurial startup providers. We've got an internet service provider now that is literally a mom-and-pop company. They're climbing the poles themselves, and they've connected up a town. They're improving infrastructure in another town, and they're going down the road to hit the town down the street. Uh, and so they've found that entrepreneurial opportunity to create. Sorry, I just want to jump in because I feel like sometimes there's a, there's a tension in that, and I want to salute that entrepreneurial activity. At the same time, it's not always clear that that's going to be the what's going to solve the long-term economic interests of the, of the community. And I just want to make sure people have a sense that we want to celebrate people solving those problems, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the problem is totally solved for everyone at that point. Oh, no, we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. And people need to understand the value of the Internet. I think that's one of the challenges in our aging population. And somebody shared a story with me. They had a defibrillator in their heart that was connected to their Wi-Fi that communicated with the hospital. The gentleman was about 75 years old. And he woke up in the middle of the night with a jolt. And he called the hospital and he said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And they said to him, you've already had the heart attack. We engaged the defibrillator built into your chest. You were dead. We brought you back to life. You're welcome, Iron Man. You're, right? So, you know, that is the world we live in. So when we talk about people staying where they grew up, aging in place, having safety in rural communities, being able to move there and know that you have access to the world, mm -hmm. it also revolves around telehealth. 
It revolves around having that conversation online with the doctors. It's not just about download speed, it's about upload speed. It's about that medical equipment communicating instantly with that hospital anywhere in the world and that hospital being able to respond to you. And so when older folks say, well, you know, I don't have that connect or I don't think that connectivity is is worth the money to have my grandkids, you know, know that your grandkids will, first of all, come more often mm-hmm. and stay longer. Oh, yes. But it also really revolves around your health and living that quality of life issues. And that's what rural America really offers. That's what our small towns offer is a fantastic quality of life. But you have to have a 21st century life to go with it. Right. And, and in particular in eastern North Carolina, some history. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, in Minnesota, we still, our antiques are like 75 years old. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Ron. And thank you, Darren. Uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, but I wanted to say, and Ron just touched on it, one thing that we have found in working in East North Carolina is everybody's pulling in the same direction. Even though there's different agencies, different groups, different organizations, everyone sees the need. So that's been very refreshing. But I wanted to tell your listeners, because we've talked a lot about Gig East, tell them to go to gigeast.com. They'll see updates on the space, mm-hmm. and they'll see what's going on in Wilson. Great pictures of drywall being uh, Absolutely, mudded. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode in our YNC Broadband Matters podcast series and for listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Remember to follow Christopher on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. And if you follow at NCHeartsGB on Twitter, you'll tap into all the NC Broadband Matters material. We want to thank Shane Ivers of SilbermanSound.com for the series music, What's the Angle? licensed through Creative Commons. And we want to thank you for listening. Until next time.